All right, well, open your Bibles, Revelation chapter 1. We're wanting to start a new series uh, this morning called To Whom It May Concern. And what we're wanting to do is look at the seven letters to the Church of Revelation. One of the things that is helpful to me when looking at this, this book that, that we all know and love and still trying to figure out, and we'll die still trying to figure it out, uh, all the little details, but it's helpful to read Revelation through the lens it was meant to be read through. And that is through the local church. Revelation isn't, the purpose of it isn't for us to figure out how our charts work, right? Isn't, isn't to, to have a newspaper in one hand and Revelation in the other, but rather it is written to, to be a blessing to the local church. And we know that because it was written to seven local churches in Asia Minor. And in order for us to, to, to look at these seven letters, we need to read the introduction to Revelation, which is found in chapter 1. So if you will, stand with me out of reverence for God's word as we will read the entire chapter. The Apostle John, while marooned on the island of Patmos, writes on the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Revelation 1.1. The revelation Jesus Christ, which, which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place, he made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear, who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. John said to the seven churches that are in Asia, Mina, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, from the seven spirits who are before the throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, the ruler of the kings of the, on earth. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom of priests to his God and Father. To him be glory, dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so. Amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is, who was, who is to come, the Almighty. I, John, your brother and partner in tribulation, the kingdom and patient endurance that are in, in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, Write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches in Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamum, to Thyatira, to Sardis, to Philadelphia, and Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstands, one like the Son of Man, clothed in a long robe with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. His voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead, but he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last, the living one. I died, behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are and, and, and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw on my right hand and the seven golden lampstands and the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, seven lampstands that are the seven churches. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our Father, we ask, as always, you would open our eyes that we would see your glory, our ears that we would hear your word, our mind that we would understand your gospel, and our hearts that we would see your truth. Open our mouths that we would speak the hope of Christ, and our hands and our feet that we will go in obedience. Lord, this is your work. Help us to see Christ. 
May I decrease so that you can increase. Name your son, we pray. Amen. Seated. Many of you all know my, 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 my love of history. I love reading history. And uh, in fact, during quarantine, when I finally had the energy to read, uh, I read three or four books on a single topic over a few days. And I, I, I could just, just read all day. And I love to read about history. There's really two approaches to history to oversimplify it. The one is the one that we usually think of when we think of history, and that is to look at the big events and, 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 and the, the, the big figures of history, kings and generals and writers and philosophers and thinkers and theologians and, and leaders, right? When we, we think of these broad movements and these, these major moments in history, and we think of names that, that will go down for forever and be uh, remembered forever. But then there, there's another way to read history, and, and it isn't to, to read history from, for, for, from above. It's really to read history from below. It is, is to, to encounter everyday people who are affected by those large events, but they live their daily lives in the world. And, and it is through them we can really understand history at a deeper, more personal level. What you get in Revelation is both the, the history from above and history from below. From above, we, we meet some of the big pivotal people of Revelation, the beast, the false prophet, the harlot on the red dragon, and of course, Christ riding in on a white horse. We, we get those big events. We get you know, earthquakes and famines and plagues and, and comets falling out of the sky. We see nations rise and nations fall. We, we get these, these massive events throughout Revelation. But we also need to see Revelation through uh, the link of below. That the book is written not to 21st century Americans initially, but it is written to first century Christians in a specific area, which means the message of Revelation must meet the present needs of believers. Revelation is meant to encourage real Christians and in real churches, in a real setting. And what we see at the center of the message of Revelation, if, if, even if we get distracted by all the symbolism and the metaphors and the apocalyptic imagery, the message at its core is Christ. Though life may be chaotic, governments will always be corrupt, and society has always been messy. Revelation reminds us that at the center of everything, our hope in such a fallen, broken world is Jesus. It is easy to take our eyes off Jesus amid such messiness. But when we come to Revelation and meet these churches, we are reminded never to do that. Let us begin here, verses 1 through 8, where we see Christ and his saving gospel. Now, Revelation opens up with lengthy greetings that are full of information. If you've read through the New Testament, I'm sure you're familiar with your typical greeting. And this is typical of most greetings uh, of Roman letters at this time. Paul, an apostle, Lord Jesus Christ, to the church of Ephesus uh, and to Timothy, our brother, greetings to you, grace and peace to you from our Lord, Father, Jesus Christ. Right, right. You, you, you get that, right? It's the same sort of general introduction, all these. Revelation is, is, is a little lengthier. And, and in these first three verses, we, we discover a few things. The first thing we discover is that the book of Revelation is a revelation first to Jesus and then from Jesus to John. 
Yet there's more happening here in that little detail we see in verses 1 and 2. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending to his angel, to his servant, John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. So, so we get a revelation of Christ, who then reveals it to John, who now is revealing it to the church. But there's more going on there than simply that. Notice that here we see Jesus is both the object and the content of this book. He is the object in that he, it is revealed to him. At the same time, he is the content of the book. This is to say he stands at the very center of it. He is both the one who is revealed and he is the one who reveals. So right from the beginning, we see the centrality of Christ in world affairs. Secondly, we, we see that to receive this message and to obey this message is the source of joy. You see it there in verse three. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy and blessed are those who hear and keep what is written. Now, this message of blessedness is found throughout the book of Revelation. In fact, not only is it, is it open with the hope of joy, those who hear and receive and keep and obey the message of, of the gospel, but it concludes with the same message in Chapter 22, it says, Behold, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the word of the prophecy of this book. That is to say that when we encounter this book, when we encounter the message of Revelation, our response should not be one of fear, but one of joy. Why? Because at its center is the message, Christ is risen. Christ and his gospel is the hope of the world. And this, it doesn't matter how messy things may get, how chaotic the world may be. We have Christ. And when we encounter Christ, we find joy. Greetings always introduce in these letters. They introduce us to both the writer. Here we have John. And then, of course, the recipients. And the recipient we see there in verse 4 is the seven churches of Asia Minor. They are, they are mentioned by name going down to, to verse 11. But this is an important detail. Revelation is what scholars call a circular letter. That is to say that when you receive this letter, uh, it was to also to be sent to other churches. Another example of this might be Ephesus. Uh, or Ephesians, right? It's very likely that's a circular letter. Colossians, at the end of Colossians, Paul says, make a copy of this and send it to the Laodiceans in chapter four of Colossians. So too, Revelation is, isn't written to just one person or one individual. It's, it's written to at least seven churches. And of course now, does. That means that the first audience were first century Christians suffering and dealing with real issues, not just to 21st century Americans. So when reading Revelation, can we, can we have a habit here, start a new habit of reading Revelation? Focus less on international politics and more on local churches and local believers. Because that is who it is written to. And it's made very clear there in verse 4. John to the seven churches in Asia Minor. Now, notice what this message is. So, so, so we get the greeting, right? Jesus is the object and the content. He's the revealed and the revealer. And so it's written to seven churches. But then notice immediately what John wants us to see. He wants us to see who Jesus is, verses 4 and 5. It says there, him who is, 
who was, who is to come. No doubt a reference to his life, his death, and his resurrection. He was, he now is, and he is to come. This is repeated in verse 8 of chapter 1, and it shows up throughout the book. Later, uh, you'll see that the beast himself um, uh, uh, tries his own version of this. But in Revelation 4.8, we see the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within. And the day and night, they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. This is the eternality of Christ. He is infinite. He is beyond our imagination. He is past. He is present. He is future. The writer of Hebrews would say that Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Not only do we see that Christ in his personage is eternal, but he is the faithful witness there in verse 4. He is the firstborn of the dead. Thus, thus, as Christ is risen, so shall we. He is the ruler of kings on the earth. You think that's good news? Because Revelation is full of kings warring against the nations, warring against Christ, causing chaos and, and everything else. And what, what do we see immediately here? To you churches under Caesar, to you churches throughout the nations, never forget Christ is king over the nations. But it isn't just that we see the person of Jesus here in these opening verses. We also see the finished work of Christ particularly in verses 5 through 7. Notice there it says, it speaks of him who loved us, him who freed us from our sins by his blood, him who made us a kingdom to his God and Father. Notice there the language of love, of blood, of kingdom. John wants us to see right from the beginning, here is Christ and you are saved by him. This is his gospel. He who is eternal became one of us. And as one of us, he died for us. His story didn't end there at the cross. But ended at the empty tomb in his ascension. And there he rules and reigns. Isn't this the basic message of the gospel? Christ and his cross? Right from the beginning. Amid all the chaos that is the Roman world in Asia Minor. John says, pause and consider Jesus Christ and Him crucified. But isn't just Christ and Christ and His gospel, there is also Christ and His church. Notice the language going down to, to verse 9. I, John, your brother and partner in tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island of Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. Notice how John describes himself. He describes himself as a fellow brother a fellow partner in the, in the gospel. I trust you're familiar with, with, with the, the, the setting here. John is marooned on an island uh, called Patmos because of his faith. It's a difficult island to get to. This was a typical uh, uh, form of, of, um, uh, of punishment at this time. And so we need to know here, John did not arrive on this island to experience this unique and miraculous uh, vision of Jesus. Rather, he has arrived because in the eyes of Caesar, he is an enemy. As were the many Christians that Revelation is addressed to. John, because he proclaims Jesus is Lord and not Caesar, he is an enemy of the state. If you follow me on Facebook, you saw this quote I had of Tim Keller. I find it quite helpful. He says, in the Roman Empire, they said, you Christians are too exclusive. 
You threaten the social order because you won't honor our deities. In the modern West, what we get is, you Christians are too exclusive. You threaten the social order because you won't honor our identities. It's amazing we haven't changed much. John is an enemy of the state, as are these Christians. So he's saying here, look, I'm your brother. I'm your partner in suffering. And notice he is a partner in three ways. The first way is through tribulations. There in verse 9. I am your brother and partner in tribulation. And it's striking that John starts there, right? American Christians wouldn't begin here when describing our partnership with other believers. And the reason is because we have yet to experience the sort of suffering the far majority of Christians have experienced throughout history. In fact, the modern view is that suffering is evidence of God's absence. And in that belief, we demonstrate that though we may publicly reject the prosperity heresy, in really we kind of buy into it. I mean, how many of us in the midst of our suffering say, woe is me, God, why, what have I done wrong? Where is God in all of this? How many people have left our churches because instead of persevering through suffering, they blamed God and made shipwreck of their faith? That is evidence of a soft prosperity theology. But for John, he says, this is, this is where we partner together. I am suffering in this way. You are suffering in these other ways. But what we have together is we are enemies of a state together. We are partners in Christ. And notice he uses a very strong word here, tribulation. And chances are when you read Revelation, you, you, the word tribulation, you think of a system. So if you're a dispensationist, you think seven years tribulation or where there's other interpretations of that term. When actually uh, that is used in that context once in Revelation, but is typically used in this more general sense. For example, in Revelation 2 verse 9, this is written to one of the churches and says, Jesus says, I know your tribulation. I know your poverty. The common error we make is assuming that tribulation is limited to a future reality, not a present one. That was not the case for this writer and his first reader. So not only is he a partner in tribulation, he's a partner in the kingdom. Jesus spoke often of the kingdom of God, and here John reminds his readers of their shared identity in it. Jesus is king, a theme that runs throughout the entire book. Even more, you and I, as partners, are members, citizens of his kingdom. Thus, our identity, John is saying, is not to Rome or to America, but rather it is to Christ's kingdom. He is our king. And thirdly, notice that they are partners in patient endurance. I think the center, the center of the book is Christ, the book of Revelation. But I think the applicational center is right here, that we may learn to endure with great patience. It is a book about endurance and perseverance. The seven churches are called to suffer well with endurance. They suffer from internal threats. They suffer from external threats. But they are called to persevere. Right from the beginning, John identifies as one of them who is suffering in Christ as they are. Notice what he's doing here. John, you have two options when you suffer. John could, could be on this island and say, well, God must, have, God must have abandoned me. 
He could internalize his suffering and say, man, everything's awful. No one loves me. I'm all alone. Well, what's the use anymore? Or he can see Christ in his suffering. He can say, you know what? I may be alone on an island, but I am not alone in Christ. There are right now an unnumbered number of saints who I am partners with in Christ. I may not know their name. I may not have seen their face, but together we suffer with endurance as Christ has suffered for us. So John is instructed to receive the word of Christ and to deliver it to his church. Thus, the message of revelation isn't just for me. It is for us. Christianity is not about me and God. It's about us and God's kingdom. Think about it. Most of the New Testament is written to local congregations and not to individuals. In fact, one of those letters written to an individual would have been read publicly at church, the book of Philemon. Onesimus and, and uh, uh, not Eutychus, that's the guy in Acts, but, but two people are delivering the books of Colossians and Philemon at the same time. Colossians would have been read publicly to the church, and then they would have grabbed that personal letter to Philemon all about you should do this with Onesimus, you should forgive him and set him free, that would have been read publicly as well. What do you think Philemon would have done after everyone you know, read that letter? He probably would have followed along with what, what Paul had suggested. The reason this is important is because we need to see the commands of Scripture, not just personally, but corporately. Not just me as a husband love your wife. Husbands in the church love your wife. Not just me to, 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 to put on a new self, but all of us together, let us encourage and lead one another to put on a new self, to become more like Christ. You can't separate Jesus and his church anymore. You can't separate husband from wife. Isn't that what we see in Revelation? It begins with letters to seven suffering churches. It ends with the church adorned for her wedding day. So we see not just Christ and his gospel, Christ and his bride, the church, but we also see Jesus and the Christ. Notice what he does in verses 12 to to 20. John doesn't hear a voice, but he sees the one who is speaking and he is mesmerized. Notice that verse 12, I turn to see the voice How do you see a voice, right? This is apocalyptic language. You don't see a voice, you hear a voice. Unless, of course, you're writing an apocalypse, so then then it makes sense. I see a voice that was speaking to me, and turned out I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstand, I I saw a son of man clothed with a long robe and a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. His voice was like one of roar of many waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars from his mouth, came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though I were dead. Does all that make sense? We, We just move on? It's pretty clear, isn't it? No, again, we we, we need to see here Christ, right? Isn't the image that of Christ? Now, the temptation is for us to get lost in all the details. Uh, But what I want us to do in reading Revelation is, is to appreciate the details, but not miss the big picture. The big picture is here is Christ 
in his essence. And it is dumbfounding. It will leave us mesmerized. And, and we would stand there, jaw dropped to the floor, stunned at the beauty and the glory that is Christ. The one risen from the dead, ascended at the right hand, throne of Father. So in verse 12, we see that Christ is Lord over the churches. We see that with the reference to the golden lampstands. Um, the seven golden lampstands are very clear in verse 20. They represent the seven churches here in Revelation. And striking, isn't it? John's first vision of Jesus is that he is sovereignly, providentially caring for a church that was under assault. Isn't that encouraging? That the first thing he notices about Jesus is that he is exercising lordship and pastoral care over churches who are in the middle of a chaotic world. If only I can think of an application for us today in that regard. Maybe you can help me think of one. We don't have an absent Savior, but a present loving groom who is with his people. Verse 13, we see not just that Christ is sovereign over his church, but that Christ is Savior. One like the Son of Man, it says there. Son of Man is Jesus' preferred title in the Gospels. It, it reminds us really of Daniel's vision, particularly of Daniel 7, where he describes the Son of Man as the Messiah who rules and reigns over the universe. We see Christ as high priest there in verse 13. He's clothed with a long robe, a golden sash across his chest. This is the imagery and the dress of the high priest. So not only is Jesus king, verse 5, he is priest. We've talked about this on Wednesday night, particularly this past Wednesday night, where we see Christ is the royal priest. He both rules as king, he intercedes for us as priest. You have a man sitting at the right hand of the throne of the Father who intercedes on your behalf. You need to pause and meditate on that for the rest of the week. Christ is divine, verse 14. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes are like flames of fire. What powerful imagery that is. So white was his hair that John gives multiple similes to explain it. It's white like wool. That's white. It's white like snow. That's white. And on and on and on it goes. Do you have anyone in your life that does that? They try to tell a story, but it's taking forever to tell a story because they keep repeating the details. Uh, I've got a little girl that does that. Like, plot. Give me plot, right? I don't need all the details. I get it. You're in the store. Move, right? But, but, but John is stunned. He said, it's so white. I hack it. It's like wool. No, it's, it's like snow. No, no, it's, it's, you know, and he keeps going and going. His, his point is to emphasize that, 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 that what we have here is beauty and majesty. I mean, did anyone walk out in the snow the other day needing sunglasses? Right? You ever been in that sort of snow? Particularly when it's like 20 inches of snow like we had. You're trying to drive and, and you can't see because the sun is shining on the snow. Or maybe it's a full moon outside and, and, and it's at midnight and you, you, you can walk outside without a flashlight. That's bright, isn't it? Now that is bright snow. Bright snow, right? And, and that's what he's describing. And you see throughout Scripture that this is the sort of majestic glory of God. And this is the same imagery we see again in Daniel 7, where, 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 where the Son of Man, the ancient of the days, is clothed as white as snow. His hair is, is, is like pure wool, thrown with fiery flames, like wheels that were burning fire. This is to say what we have here, who is Lord over the church, he is king over the nations, is divine. He is majestic 
Christ is mighty there in verse 15. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. His voice were like the roar of many waters. Again, you can't understand Revelation without understanding the Old Testament. Here, John is quoting Ezekiel 43, which says, Behold, the glory of God of Israel was coming from the east. The sound of his coming was like the sound of many waters, and the earth shone with his glory. Have you ever stood by mighty waters, rushing waters? It's an incredible sound, isn't it? He is mighty. He is strong. He is Lord. Finally, verse 16 to 20, Christ is sovereign. In his right hand, he held seven stars. Now, just, just pause there for a minute. Whatever the stars represent, they represent the, the, the angels or messengers to the seven churches. But the imagery is, in his right hand are seven stars. Now, what we don't have here is a little boy looking at the night sky thinking, I can hold that star in my little finger. That's not what we're having described here. We have entire nebulae. We have entire galaxies in the palm of his hand. And he holds them. Why? Because he is creator. He is sovereign Lord. His face was like the sun shining in full strength. Notice again, if the stars represent the messengers of the churches or the angels, depending on your interpretation, he holds them in his hand. He holds them in his hand. Mom and dad, particularly dads, have you ever, have you ever been with your kids and maybe it was very crowded and you were, you were afraid of, that the kids might wander off? Did you not hold on to them? And isn't there a security that maybe your mom and dad gave you that if they gripped me, if they had me, I couldn't go anywhere. I was safe in their arms. So do Christ has the messengers of the churches. He has the seven churches in his hands. Great encouragement that is to you and I. So taking all this together, verses 12 to 20, we see we have a mighty Savior powerfully and lovingly ruling over the universe with special care over his church. If we could pull back the proverbial curtain, this is what you and I would see right now. This is the Christ we worship. He's not our homeboy. He's not our co-pilot. He's not our friend. He's not our political ally. He is Christ. And let our vision of Jesus in the local church be this large. Because the reason we struggle with anxiety and fear and uncertainty is because the Jesus we worship is too small. But if you look like this, We'd be better off. So yes, Revelation is full of wild imagery, exciting apocalyptic visions. Yet at its center is Christ in his glory. It's about Jesus who continues to enter our world. Jesus who continues to comfort us amid our suffering. And he draws us to see his final victory. Jesus rules. Jesus reigns. Jesus redeems. And let our vision of Christ be as large as the one that we see here. For this is who he is. Let's pray.